morning, good afternoon, and good evening. See, sometimes I say or, sometimes I say and. You have arrived. Today's an all-inclusive kind of day. It's all-inclusive. That's right. That's right. It's all-inclusive. It's, it's morning, afternoon, or evening somewhere on the planet. That's right. You have arrived at the Silmarillion Film Project, in case you're wondering what the heck this is. I am Trish Lambert. Dave Kale is not with us this evening because there is a bedtime, bath time thing going on in the Kale household That's right. that he needs to oversee. But I am joined by, of course, by the token professor, Corey Olson, and we are working on the story of men some more tonight, right? That's right. We are. It's time to... So we talked about Haleth last time and uh, did some uh, did some good work developing Haleth's story, which was really fun. And I know... I was glad Dave was able to make that one, as I knew that was one of the things he was most looking forward to uh, in this season. Um, but uh, today we've got to kind of circle back and we're going to look at, at Beor and Amlak in particular, uh, thinking about their stories. But also, you know, one of the things that I want to... Um, uh, myself kind of get towards is just having a clearer sense of like the groups of men, like who's where, when and how, and what are the stories of the different chunks of people uh, so that we can get some kind of sense of, uh, you know, like narrative coherence here in where the men are and what they're up to uh, here in Beleriand. Um, uh so anyway, that's where that's what we're going to try to accomplish today. And uh, uh, we'll see. We'll see how far we get on that. Um, so just a couple quick reminders today. Nothing uh, new or earth shattering. Uh, a reminder about uh, first Mythmoot 7 still scheduling scheduled to happen in the beginning of August, August 6th through 9th. Um, uh, moved from the end of June here, but we're hopeful. Uh, to be able to move forward there in August. And we have Teachers Online, Signum's online teaching mentorship program um, where we are offering training and support for uh, folks who are trying to convert online. Uh, and especially, that is, of course, certainly not a thing at all that is done right now. And a lot of schools uh, are thinking or should be thinking about uh, what they're going to be doing with their online teaching moving forward, uh, because it's likely to be something that is going to continue moving forward. So um, uh, we are we continue to make that available for folks. And of course, Signum Path. If you have not signed up for Signum Path yet, then you're missing our first classes, which are fantastic. We're coming to the end of our first week of Signum classes. I've been talking to the preceptors and hearing from some of the students. It's been great so far. Um, uh, so, but that's okay. Do not despair. You can still sign up for July or August. We have those going on there. So if you go to path.signumuniversity.org, you can still register for upcoming, uh, for upcoming, uh, semesters and, or uh, semesters, months. <laughs> See how you think? <laughs> that's how I think. I know. It's, it's, Black. uh. One that, class a month, just one short month. Yeah, it is a semester. It's not exactly semester. It's a term. Yeah, That's no. what I've tried to compromise term, with myself by go. calling them terms, <laughs> right? Because then I can I can still kind of use them. In the business like world, they call them months. Exactly. Yeah. True. <laughs> so it looks like you may have a little bit of a tech issue going on. Oh yeah, no, I think I'm oh, good. Oh, there you go. Okay. I think I'm good. Hey, yeah. so before oh, you need to, did you talk about the mentorship program already? Oh yeah, no, I did. Yeah, we're good. Okay. So before we jump into this, I, I have another kind of PSA for folks. If you have not seen it yet, I highly recommend that you go to YouTube to Josh Gad's show, G-A-D. He did the re, he reunited the, the Lord of the Rings cast oh, right. along with Peter right. Jackson and uh, and Phil Vaughn. And it was really fun. They talked, they reminisced. It was lovely to see them all. Uh, Jonathan Reese davies was really funny because he had a dwarf helmet and he, he and, he and, um, 
Legolas, what's his name? Orlando Bloom read the scene at Helm's Deep where he asked if he needs a box. So when they did that, Reese Davies like got down so you could only see his eyes in the camera <laughs> on the screen. But anyway, so yeah, they had a number of like pairs do um, do readings. At, like uh, Sean Astin and and, and uh, Circus did uh, Gollum and Sam talking about potatoes, mm-hmm. taters, and you know that was really cute. But one of the things that I was really surprised about, they did a little. Um, a little trivia thing. Did you realize, I did not realize this, that Legolas, the only thing that Legolas says to Frodo in the entire trilogy, in the entire movie is, and my bow. (laughs) He never addresses him directly on any other occasion? Never addresses him directly. So of course, now I got to go back and watch the trilogy just to double check (laughs) that. But I was shocked. There's a whole lot more little anecdotes that were just wonderful. Ian McKellen was on and oh my gosh, he was just wonderful. Yeah. He was funny because Ian McKellen said, well, you know, um, let's see, you know that uh, in the book, actually, Gandalf did not say, what well, you shall not pass. You know what? I forget. I think you cannot pass. I think he says in the book. Mm-hmm. But Jackson, and so Jackson talked over him because McKellen was trying to say he's Gandalf in the book said you cannot pass. And and uh, Jackson says, oh, yes, yes, yes. That's right. He said you will not pass. It's like, dude, just give it a rest. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so look him up. I don't have the URL, but Josh Gad, he's doing a bunch of different reuniting things, and he did this one that was really fun. Yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. I haven't gotten to watch it yet. I heard, I saw that it was happening, but I didn't get a chance to watch it yet. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it sounds totally like it was awesome. Okay, now let's cool. get serious. All right, let's get serious. Let's get back to the men here. So let me, uh, we're going to talk about Bayor here in a second. Let me start off with just okay. I was talking about the different peoples, and I was just rereading the text again um, earlier this evening, a few hours ago, honestly, and I was reminded of the fact I have always I have always been dissatisfied by the story of the men. That is, we don't really get that the whole, the story of what happens to men in Beleriand is extremely muddy. I, I, I don't know how else to describe it. Um, that is, so, I mean, keep in mind when I'm saying these things, this is not me criticizing the Silmarillion. This is just a product of the kind of narrative that the Silmarillion is, right? It's designed to be a sort of overview quasi-historical chronicle kind of thing, right? So the important thing, for, especially given that it, we're talking from the point of view of the, um, of the elves, right, uh, who are, um, uh, you know, sort of encountering these, uh, the men, it's no surprise that we don't get much of the story, like, of them, like, we don't get, we don't get, we get almost nothing from their point of view, right? And the movements of the men is not really clear and the like what is moving them to move is even less clear um so we've got like they come over in three groups but then they all kind of mingle in estelad vaguely right and some of them go out and go other places like individuals go out and serve with the elves and then 
kind of come back and sometimes some of their families leave and go elsewhere, but we don't exactly know which ones and where. And there are a few times when there are sort of some larger migrations to particular places and then some of them leave, but some of them stay. And do they go with the elves or do they all, how many of them stay there in Estelad forever? I like what, what's going We don't really know like all of that. Um, all of that stuff is, is, is really quite unclear. Right. Um, and I, what I'm, one of the things that I am wanting to do is I would love for us to have some clear storylines about the men, right? And, and motivations. Too, and motivations, right? right? So that we're really <laughs> using this as an opportunity to explore both sides, both what the elves are thinking of the men and also what the men are thinking of the elves and how both of them are related to the war in the north and all of these other things, right? To the leaguer of Morgoth and their prospects and all of those things and characters that we care about. Nick, I agree. That is certainly another thing that I want and, and that we need to have. Right. So, um, so this is, and you know, remember this is one of like my rule number one of adaptation, right? You know, I mean, like my absolute rule number one, when you're doing an adaptation, the very first priority, your first priority is not remaining faithful to the text. Your first, first priority is telling a good story. Right. If you don't tell a good story, it doesn't matter how faithful you are to the text. You're going to do a bad adaptation if you're not telling a good story. Right. Um, uh, and if you don't believe me, watch the Hobbit films again and you'll see what I mean. Um, uh, that he yeah. wasn't true to the story at all, oh, nor sure did he was. tell a good story. It was in many ways. Uh, I, the I, barrel, writing the barrels down. The, well, I guess they did write barrels down. They, 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 they did write just, barrels just down. Just not the way Bomber did. No, of course. And Legolas there are lots of things added, but thing. no, anyway, we, I, wanna, I don't want to get into a whole huge debate oh, okay. about it. But the point is, <laughs> there's plenty there. There's plenty there. Um, and... Uh, uh, I mean, again, even the bloody sandworms at the end are from the text for crying out loud, like the wild wereworms of the, in the last desert show up in at the end of the film. That's a terrible idea. Right. But by God, it's there in the text. <laughs> right. So anyway, um, I, 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 I'm not uh, I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm not here to reopen debates about the Hobbit films, which, of course, we spent three years discussing what. But what I'm saying is. It's not first and foremost, the faithfulness to the text, responding to the text is crucially important to any good adaptation, but it is not the most important thing. The most important thing is that we tell a good story. Um, and um, anyway, uh, so... Um, yeah, Marie is uh, giving an ex several people are giving examples. Uh, Marie was just talking about the uh, uh, a film version of the War of the Worlds that is painfully faithful to the text and painfully boring to watch. That often happens. Um, uh, Stephen uh, Stephen H uh, talks about. Um, uh, the, yeah, certainly there are some examples of ones which fail for multiple reasons, both because of a bad story and uh, not being true to the text. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, um, but um, anyway, um, I would uh, so I, I, when I'm when we're talking about um, uh, the movements of the men and trying to figure out this story again, my, my first priority is not 
to say, well, what does it say in the text and how can we most carefully represent that? My first priority is to say, how can we tell a good story, which works with what we have in the text, which works with the elements that we get in the text, um, and but that we can put together into a really good story. And as it stands, the migration of the men and how they get integrated into Beleriand is not a good story. It's not a developed story. It's not meant to be a developed story, right? Um, that that chapter is like men come into middle or in, into Beleriand, right? And they mostly ally with elves, and they end up kind of all over the place with a bunch of the elves, except not in Doriath, right? That's kind of what the chapter accomplishes, and that's fine. Like in the context of the Silmarillion, that 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 does a job um, that it wants to, especially given what it is. Um, but, um, uh, but, um, anyway, it's, uh, it's, that's not what I want to do. I want to be thinking about stories. So my first, um, I'm coming back around to Bayor here eventually, um, because the people of Bayor are one of my first, one of the first things whose muddiness I was slogging through when trying to work out the Bayor story and what we could do with the Bayor story. Um, because on the one hand, so in the text, Bayor by himself leaves with Finrod, right? Um, Finrod comes and meets Bayor and his people. Bayor is the leader of like a large chunk of the people. Uh, and Right after Finrod meets him, Beor like is like peace out, folks, and he goes with Finrod and serves Finrod like one on one. Like I don't know, he becomes his valet or something. I'm not sure what Beor does exactly with Finrod, but he goes and he hangs <laughs> with Finrod, right? Um, but his people are still called the people of Beor, kind of, right? Uh, even though Beor is no longer there, and they're still mostly in Estelad, except some of them go elsewhere until eventually some of them go one other place. You know, some of them leave with Bereg, and some of them go to Dorthonian eventually, right? Um, and it's like, okay, that's that's not a story. That's just a bunch of things happening, right? Um, and in particular, like, in what sense is this tribe even a thing, even a story, even a, even a potential character, right? It, no, it ceases even to be a coherent like tribe or there's no narrative for the people of Bayor at all. Other than that, a lot of them end up, um, uh, other than that, a lot of them end up, um, in, uh, in, um, Dorthonian eventually, which, okay, like, great. So we get that. Um, but, um, Anyhow, so we, I want to. I want there to be like a, if if the people of if we're going to present the fact that the people of Beor is a thing, right? That there's this group of people and they are the people of Beor. We need to have something happen with them. They need to be characters, um, uh, like that, that that people. Some there needs to be an arc, right? There needs to be a story uh, for those people. Um, so my first, the, 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 when I think about the essentials of what needs to happen with the people of Beor, we've already kind of conceived of the overall story here, 
you know, we, we've already started this work in thinking about what are some of the the ways in which we can use the three different peoples that we have, right? The Haladin, the people of Beor, uh, and the people of Marach or Amlach or Hador, anyway, the rest of them, right? As I say, muddy. Uh, but whatever, um, the other group, large group of folks who are all under one chieftain who never does anything or says anything or gets a role in the story, right? Um, because again, story not interested in him, though it points out the fact that he exists. Um, okay, anyway, so we we have these three groups of people, right? And so we can use them as an opportunity to tell different narratives that dramatize how humans interact with elves. Great. Fine. And so the role that we were talking about keying on Beor himself, we were, uh, we were in, and his role in his new name, Beor, uh, which means vassal. Um, we had them being the ones who are most quickly devoted in service to the elves, right? Um, that their path is one of, uh, devotion from the beginning. They're the quickest and first, to jump in and say, we love the elves, we want to help and serve the elves, um, we think they're great, and we, like, you know, practically, practically worship them. Not quite, but, you know, like, kind of close. And um, anyway, like, we, they, we are like the younger siblings of the elves, and, and we want to help and serve them. Like, that's where the people of Beor are. Whereas the Haladin, as we discussed, are in the opposite direction. Men who want to just do their own thing, be left on their own to build their own, you know, their own home and not be bothered by other folks. Right. And then, of course, that leaves the rest of them, the rest of that other people, which is the most amorphous chunk of people that we get. Um to do something else. And we were talking about, you know, ideas for them about how they're going to, uh, kind of, we're going to show in them the changeover. So, um, my, yeah, I'm going to come back to Bereg, Stephen H. Bereg, of course, is the guy who leads the folks out to the East. Um, uh, we'll get there. Actually, we'll get there sooner rather than later. Um, so let me, um, Go back with this in mind, like this in mind of wanting to clarify uh, and make um, to make clear stories, um, clear like again stories with arcs in them, right? For these people groups as a whole, because it's going to have to be a multi generational story with these humans, with the exception of Haleth, right? Who is a people under herself, essentially, right? Haleth's story establishes the Haladin. And then basically their kind of, their story ends essentially for now. Like they don't progress any further. They, they, they want to secede and do their own thing. And they get to a place where they're on their own and they're doing their own thing. And from now on, they're going to be over there, doing their own thing until we need them again, right? Uh, uh, for you know various other narrative purposes later on, they'll come into other stories, obviously, uh, especially Turin's story when we get there. Um, but we're you know we're we, we'll, we'll be sort of done with them. Um, they're a little bit more of a one-shot story, so that's okay. But Beor's folks and the other folks are not going to be done. They're going to be a multi-gen. Both of them are going to be multi-generational stories. Um, which need to get from Beor up to Beren, right, and through Endreth, 
uh, on the one hand with this group of folks. And then with the other group of folks, we're going to have Amlok, Hador, uh, and then eventually, of course, Hurin. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, Hurin and, 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 and Turin, of course, and so on down the line. Um, so we have their stories, which again, both, so both of those stories are going to be over the course of season five, multi-generational stories between the first half of the season and second half of the season, as we've discussed, having a sort of generational gap in between the front half and the back half, uh, of the seasons there. Um, so with that in mind, let's focus on the people of Bayor and on Bayor himself and then on the people of Bayor and see what we can, what we can decide here. So, um, Bayor is the beginning. He is the first man that we introduce to the audience and he's going to become Finrod's friend and vassal. As we said, one of the most important elements of Bayor's story is that he dies of old age and that his death of old age will feel abrupt to both the elves and the audience. His legacy will be humans living with elves. Okay. So, we have a series of questions uh, here that have been gathered together uh, from the discussions that you guys have been having on the discussion boards. Uh, so I will, I will read through these questions because I was gonna I was thinking about talking about them in order, but then I was like, no, nah, I'm gonna end up covering a bunch of them at once, so I might as well just read them all. Okay, the first episode of the season will focus on Beor's point of view as he meets the elves. Will all of his story except his death occur in that first episode? How long are we gonna have? Beor lingering on before he dies is the core question there. Who among men and elves will Beor interact with? Will the move from Estelad to Dorthonian happen on Beor's watch? Will Beor designate an heir slash successor to lead his people while he's with Finrod and Nargothrond? Will Beor fight alongside elves or engage in more peaceful activities? Are there any events that must occur before Beor's death? How early in the season can we lose Beor? Will the elves attempt to heal Beor's advanced age before he dies? And will the death of Beor prefigure the death of Aragorn in any way? Objection, Your Honor. Leading the witness. Um, I, I, <laughs> I think that's a good idea. I like the idea of Beor's death prefiguring the death of Aragorn. Um, I, I think it's an excellent suggestion. Okay. Big picture here. Now... I have another question that is not on this list, and that indeed the answer to which seems to be taken for granted by the questions on this list. Should Bear, uh, Beor alone go with Finrod? See, I'm ah, not, that is a very good question. I don't think so. My impulse is to say, no, I don't want Beor. I don't want that to be. I mean, I love the idea of the Beor Finrod bromance. Like, that's great. Romance, yeah. Love it. <laughs> love it. Um, uh, so that should absolutely happen, but I am not at all convinced that we want to leave the people of Beor in Estelad while Beor goes gallivanting off on his own, in particular since that doesn't seem to me we could, it's possible that we could work it. Um, but we had talked about thinking of the story of Finrod, now, th- you know, f- not even thinking about Beor's angle on this. But thinking about Finrod's story, we had talked about having his relationship with Beor be the moment where, um, uh, be the moment where they, um, uh, th- th- Finrod does, has his like Valinor concept, right? Let's bring the humans to, and, and what we'll, we'll do, you know, um, 
where Finrod is at the beginning with his not really acknowledging or recognizing the change that's happening in Middle-earth, right? So in, in the progress of his character in dealing with the theme of change in this season, he starts off in a very elvish, uh, conservative manner, right? Thinking we can just, we can go on as we're here now, but we can rebuild Valinor in Middle-earth to the best of our ability, right? Um, he's not quite as extreme as Turgon in this regard, who's like literally physically rebuilding like a scale model of Tyrion, right, inside Gondolin. But, um, uh, but, but he, but Finrod is definitely towards that end of the spectrum, right? And so when he meets the men, his immediate impulse is to say, hey, awesome, let's recapitulate. Let's recapitulate what happened with uh, the elves, right? Um, Just as we were brought to Valinor by the Valar and invited to come and dwell in bliss, so this must be our calling, right? Um, We have come back here and we're exiles and we did the kids thing and that was bad and we're under the doom of Mandos, but um, we can still do good, Right here in Middle Earth, and obviously one of the things that we can do is we uh, we're now here in a place where we can bring in the humans into well, not the blessed realm, but like you know the 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 sort of uh, replica version right of the of the blessed realm, and we can at least you know do all do do, do all this kind of thing. So um, um, so okay, great. That's his plan, right? So what does he do? Bring one guy? Seriously? Like, that's his plan? Uh, Now, the only way in which I could see this being spun uh, is if we... If he's seeing it as like a parallel to the ambassadors, right? Just as, as, you know, Ingwe and Finwe and Elwe went across the sea and then came back among the rest of the elves and said, hey, let's all go to Valinor. So he's like, yeah, let's do that again. Right. So I'll bring Bayor. Uh, and, and, and but the problem is he mistimes things. Right. Because he doesn't realize that Bayor is going to die of old age. So he's like, I'll bring him and he can live with me for a century or so and then go back and tell the rest of them, you know, that this is all really awesome. Uh, and then like it goes awry when Bayor like dies of old age in Finrod's house. And then he's like, oh, um, yeah. Um, uh, OK. So anyway, that's I, I could imagine us spinning it that way. But, um, I, you know, I, what I don't want is the people of Bayor and the people of Amlach slash Malach slash Hador uh, all just kind of milling around in Estelad with no like if we expect that to mean anything like the people of Bayor, if we expect that to mean anything, um, we need to differentiate them and not have them all muddling around there at Estelad. Right. Um, and it seems to me that again, we don't want Bayor alone. I think to be the instrument of this. I think we want others with him. Um, so here's, here's because here's my other thought about this. What if Andreth is that uh, I have said before, I, I really want Andreth to be the bridge, right, between for the human side, between the first half of the season and the second half of the season, for her to be uh, very young uh, in the latter parts of the first half of the season and then uh, mature, right, and aging in the second half of the season. Um, so 
but to have her be sort of the bridge between the two, and of course to have her be the primary counterpart uh, to Finrod on the human side. Now she is in the house of Beor, and I think this is a brilliant opportunity, right? Beor, Beor is a true believer. Beor is totally content, uh, and he completely buys into the whole uh, pseudo Valinorian thing, right? Let's go to the realm of bliss. This is the this is what we were coming for, right? Um, both of them, both Beor and Finrod, initially have the response that, like, we are fulfilling our destinies, right? This is, uh, you know, Finrod can be all like, see, we've been given another, ch- we've been given another chance, right? Um, you know, we, we, the Noldor, we did not, you know, cover ourselves with glory back there in Valinor, but we have the opportunity to, like, make amends, right? And to do right by the, by the second comers, Right. So let's do that. Let us let us be if we, you know, maybe if we are to them as the Valar were to us, uh, you know, that is like in some way we can redress what we do. I mean, I that, you know, as a as a kind of logic makes a certain amount of sense to me. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, so. There has to be a people who who accept that, not not just Bayor, not just him alone. Right. If there's a if the people of Beor are the people who go with with Finrod, right, the people who live with him there, um, then we can uh, we have we have that thread clearly, right? What it looks like. We have now the opportunity to develop a sort of case study, right? Humans, like a whole human culture, not just a dude, but a whole human culture when they are transplanted and live among the elf, what the, the elves, what happens in this kind of way, in this kind of uh, almost servant like way. Right. In this sort of servant like spirit. Right. Um, reverential spirit. What happens? What's good and bad about that? Because there would be both good and bad about that. Right. Um, but now you might say, but hang on. We have to get them to Dorthonian at some point, right? Um, nothing easier, right? Um, Andreth. What about Andreth, right? Andreth, we know, is going to be... Um, she's going to be complicated, much more complicated in a sense than Beor, right? At least her relationship with the elves is going to be a good deal more complicated than Beor's relationship was, right? Um she is, in a sense, the heir to the Beorian tradition, right? The devotion to the elves uh, and reverence for and love of the elves. Um, she will be the heir of that, right? But she's also going to be resistant. She's going to be more uncertain about the effects of that. Whether you know, She is going to be less convinced that this is a good, positive, fruitful arrangement, Right. Uh, And then, of course, we have all kinds of um, we have all kinds of um, uh, lovely opportunities for irony, as, of course, she is going to be the one who's going to fall in love with uh, Finrod's brother. So uh, I think there's lots of real uh, potential there. Right. Um, Whom she would presumably meet in Dorthonian when they moved. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Chris pres- uh, prefers Beoric to Beorian. Um, 
Bayoric. I like it. I agree with you, Chris. That's better. Now, hang on. So first, let me just say, I see several of you uh, making conscientious objections to various of the things that I'm saying. Don't you think I'm ignoring you completely? Not ignoring you. Just wanted to finish working out my thought here, and then I'll, I'll uh, address your objections and or accept your corrections after I... But let me, let me, let me finish working things out here. So, okay. So... It starts off looking really positive, but we know there are going to be problems with this, right? Like this, it, it, it can't work. The whole, like, let's do the Valinor thing again over here in Beleriand, that's not going to work. Um, it's counter to the way, to the whole nature of Middle-earth and certainly to the nature of men, right? Um, and the death of Beor is going to be the first indicator of that, right? And then Andreth leads the people away, essentially, um, into Dorthonian. So they don't, like you know, break up with the elves. They don't have a messy break up with the elves or something, but to that there could be um, more um, um, more uh, well, there could be sort of more reasons, right? Like she is, she's a wise woman and she could see this is not in fact how things are meant to be, right? This is not um and here I think we can bring in the question of, as again is certainly very relevant with Finrod and Andra, thinking of the Athrobeth, about the different fates of elves and men, right? Um it's not good for men to be in this like, let's just retire into a little kind of quasi paradise and ignore the world outside us, right? Um there can be a sort of discontent, if you see what I mean, with um, uh, a, a discontent with that whole idea. Um, anyway, you can work that out a little bit more. But she then would lead them to Dor- to Dorthonian. And then, of course, that's when she meets Ignor, and then things get super complicated for her personally. And... Um, uh, uh, and... Um, and the, and so there they are. So, but there's some there's some opportunity for growth not only for her, and it gives her a really important role as like a decision maker and a, a wise person who she would be right in what she's seeing. Um, uh, but there will be a lot of growth for her character as well because you know a lot of the things that she is going to say rather blithely in her youth there um, in. Um, uh, you know, before they move, um, they're going to be, um, they're, they're going to be, they're, they're, they're going to be elsewhere. Um, Stephen H says, why would it be Andreth's call? Why wouldn't it be Andreth's call? Our story. We can do what we want, right? It's, it's like, why not? Why not? I've been wanting to make Andreth the leader of her people for a while, actually, uh, or at least to be, you know, somebody who's, uh, uh, you know, whose who's wisdom and word the, the you know, the leader respects. Um, why can't we do that? I mean, and don't tell me because Andreth isn't in the Silmarillion. She's not in the Silmarillion because she wasn't invented yet. Right. Um, uh, anyway. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I. Yes, 
We can absolutely make it her call. We can make it her unilateral decision if we want to. Um, we can. We have an opportunity to parallel this move with the Halith move, right? And but to show the differences between the nature of Andreth's relationship with her people compared to Halith, right? Halith is all about the force of her will, right, and the power of her personality. Um, where with Andreth, she her, you know, leadership of her people uh, would be very, would be very different, right? Um, yeah, Chris, that's exactly the kind of thing that I'm thinking. Chris Graham says, it's a great way to show the theme of change. Mankind need change to move forward and progress. The elves crave everlasting sameness. The men could quickly grow uncomfortable living in paradise. Uh, similar to the Matrix, where the humans couldn't handle the first version of the Matrix that was a paradise. Yeah, I, that, that's actually, I wasn't thinking of that. But that's really interesting. Yeah. That is exactly along the lines, Chris, that I was thinking when I talk about the discontent that Andreth would perceive and that she would be the one who would be leading them or, or, you know, or at least counseling them to say, look, you know, this has been great. And all honestly, really, it's not you, it's us. But like, this isn't good for us. Like we can, this is not this is not what we're um, this is not what we're designed for. Right. We need to. Uh, to, you know, to, to, to sort of live in happy stasis, that's, we are like, and she can point to there, there, there would be people who would be unhappy, even though they're not suffering, right? Um, They're not outwardly suffering. They would be, um, they would be suffering. Now, a whole bunch of you are objecting to what you'll notice. I've been really indistinct about where they're going to, right? Many of you are objecting to us hauling an entire horde of people into Nargothrond. Uh, it's being secret and all. Agree. Not saying that that has to happen. Um, it's okay if they don't go to... But I don't... What I do want is if we are going to proceed with the idea that we had talked about before, about Finrod starting with this let's create a paradise for men idea and let's um, since we've established the peace and everything, let's um, uh, let's try to resume a new normal, right? Which is a new elvishly non-changing normal, right? Let us uh, uh, Finrod's first idea is like, whew, now that the excitement is over and we won the Dagoraglareb, now we can settle into my sister's happily married. Now we can settle into a time of peace and non-change, right? Like back like we used to have in the old days in Valinor, right? And oh, look, at that very moment, here are, um, uh, here are men, right? Uh, coming in and we can help them, right? So the number one objection I have to Bayor simply being separated from his people and the rest of his people living on an Estelad is that it, like, basically, it, to me, it reduces to almost nothing Finrod's choice, Okay, what? So he takes a single pet back home with him, right? And that's the big plan. Um, I, I mean, I, that that I, that doesn't seem to me at all. To fit. If we're going to show his conviction for the lack of change, Beor and you know Beor alone, and then Beor dying of old age, um, I want to do more than that. I want to do more than that. Um, and Nick, absolutely, it cuts him off from whomever is going to run the House of Beor in the future. Exactly. And it means that the House of Beor, as a group of people, they're, they're not part of the story at all. I mean, if Beor is going to be the one through whom we're going to show, like, what happens when elves, you know, jump in, or sorry, when men jump in with, with elves and live in the elvish world, you know, whole hog, um, 
well, if we have a population of one in that storyline, then when Beor dies of old age, possibly early on in the season, as you guys were suggesting, then what? Now we've now what on earth is the difference between the house of Beor and the house of Amlach Malach Marach uh, that's sitting out there in Estelad? Nothing. They're just all amorphously out there. The house of Beor doesn't even mean anything. There is no story for the house of Beor anymore at all, right? Whereas if we have them as a people moving in with the elves, right? So that we can show not just in the one singular case of Beor, but for the whole thing to show exactly as Chris was just saying, right? To show that, you know what? No, like it's not just that Finrod's, like there are two different issues, right? With Finrod's plan A of, hey, great, it's time to uh, live a peaceful, stable, normal, elvish life again, right? And then there are two problems with that plan. Problem number one, it's not going to work with humans, they just, they're not wired that way. Um, their destiny is other and their lives work differently. And that's Finrod's first wake-up call. Like, whoa, okay, so I guess it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work with them. But of course, that's only his first wake-up call to the larger realization that he eventually comes to, which is it doesn't work for anybody in Middle-earth. It's not possible, right? Um, that thing that I was assuming and hoping for and trying to build at the beginning was an illusion. At the beginning of the season, I mean, season five. That's an illusion. There is no return to that kind of an unchanging status quo, right? Um, so, um, yeah. So, um, that's, that's, why I think that the role, I would like to have the whole people. And then again, this also gives us an opportunity for Andreth to have a role for the whole house to be involved, not just Bayor himself, but for the whole house to be involved. And so therefore we can have, it enables us to follow up with more stories, right? More interesting and fun stories about um, what is the heritage of this? Right. Because again, now the house of Bayor means something and it means something different. Right. Um, then the other amorphous groups of people. Right. It means now the, this is we now have a group of people who have a generational heritage of love and devotion with elves, but also unrest with elves. Right. So as we pursue, you know, the storylines of people like Barahir and Andreth, of course, primarily, but also Barahir to Baron down the road. Right. We have that. We have a story in the background right behind that and a story which differentiates them from the kind of heritage that they would have uh, from other places. And then when we start intermarrying. Right. So we have we bring like Rion and Morwen into the house of Hador. Again, now we're we're saying something culture like there's a there's a coherent statement that we're making um, when Hurin marries Morwen. We have the marriage of these two different cultures, which we've established what the differences in those cultures are. And neither one of them is simplistic. Neither one of them is like just one color. Right. There's like shades uh, of of of, uh, uh, you know, well, there's different shades of the color there. Right. Um, And I think that that's really interesting. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So 
I agree. Question is, as Marie was just saying, so where are these elves and men cohabiting in uh, blissful yet temporary paradise? I don't know. Suggestions? <laughs> but I think it shouldn't be Dor- Dorthonian because I like the idea of the move to... I think the, uh, connecting the move to Dorthonian, uh, I would want to connect that to basically... The, the, so one way to characterize the move, the shifting of the people of Beor to Dorthonian, ultimately is the shift from a passive life to an active life, right? From retirement from the world, right? Into the little elvish paradise um, and re-entry into the world. Because so Dorthonian, Dorthonian is the front lines, right? They're going to the front lines. And here's the cool thing, right? In Barahir, we have that to, we can pay that off. It's good, for the men, it's good for the house of Beor not just to be retired, right? Not just to be set aside from the world and shielded from the world. It's good for them to be out there actively involved in the world. And Finrod himself will learn that when Barahir saves his life because they were there, up there on the front lines. Um, uh, so um, that's what I like about this. Um, So where? I'm not super bothered with where. Um, I don't want them just moving from one bit of Dorthonian to another bit of Dorthonian. Um, uh, Especially since, uh, you know, Rihanna, as you're saying, Ladros, which is the place where the people of the House of Beor lived earlier, um, is... uh, um, uh, is even closer to the front lines. Uh, so yeah, it just, it would need to be somewhere sheltered. I mean, like that's the concept here is that it would be somewhere, sh- not like Gondolin sheltered, um, nor does it have to be Nargothrond though. I don't think that myself, I object to Nargothrond quite so much as many of the rest of you do. Um, do I think it's possible for them to them? I mean, Finrod and his people to get, you know, folks from the House of Beor in stealthily and quietly. I, I, I think that could be arranged, but I'm not, um, um, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, if you guys are uncomfortable with that, I'm fine with that. I, I, I feel like actually thematically it works well, right? Because Nargothrond is the peer of Gondolin, right? I mean, it like, Nar- Nargothrond and Gondolin have been kind of a matched pair from the beginning. Both of them are very much retreated from the world, right? Nargothrond less so than Gondolin, but or less less perfectly than Gondolin. But the idea of like come to my secret place and live underground, right? I mean, it's they would literally be sheltered, right? They would uh, they would not even really be seeing the light of day anymore, and that also gives an opportunity um, for them to like a like visual manifestation um um uh the the visual manifestation of of their confinement right like that they they're hemmed in a narrow place uh to quote somebody right um they're in they're in in Nargothrond not allowed to go out into the world and to do anything right um so um you know they uh uh, I get thematically, it's I 
kind of nice, actually. Really kind of like it, in fact. And the shift to Dorthonian makes sense as it's, you know, Finrod has connections there, right? So, uh, you know, like, okay, I'll take you to live near my... He he doesn't want to ditch them, right? And they don't want to be ditched. They they're not again. They're not separating from the elves. They're not like oh, like they, we're, in fact, there can be some interesting sort of parallels, right? Which Finrod can be very much aware of. Finrod can can having first made the parallel to like I'm being like the Valar, bringing them into Valinor. He could then be like, well, but they're handling the exit a heck of a lot better than we did, right? No kinslaying necessary, no rebellion, right? I mean, he could even. I could even see him kind of, um, um, uh, kind of joke about that, even with Andreth. Um, but um, anyway, uh, I, I, you know, maybe, maybe not. Um, Rhiannon is suggesting Minas Tirith. That's one of the other things I was suggesting, Rhiannon. My biggest problem with Minas Tirith is that first of all, it's it's not that large, so it's hard to see. I mean, they could live near it, but. Minas Tirith, although, you know, it's it's a strong place, is not exactly like sheltering, right? Um, we would need them to be somewhere where they would be sheltered, right? Not only just protected, but like cut off, essentially. Um, separated from the world. Which is kind of why... Being underground, Nargothrons. If the only problem is like getting them there, surely we could solve that problem, couldn't we? Why couldn't we solve that problem? Chris suggests we could bring them all to Nargothron blindfolded. Why not? Uh, like a like a, uh, you know a whole string of blind beggars with one dog. Why not? Uh, there's there's some precedent for that. Um, uh, It's also possible that um, they could just, I mean, being in, I mean, we know that Finrod is technically like ruling enormous expanses of largely unpopulated territory, right? It's not like he doesn't have land to spare. Um, And if he were to set them up somewhere, you know, not too far I mean, it'd be a little bit ironic, right? Here, Haleth leads, uh, you know, leads her people on this like hideous trail of tears around the around the north of Doriath, uh, 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 through Nandun Gortheb, uh, and Finrod is just like, oh, or we could just go south where it's really quite nice, right? Uh, yeah, and end up like in an, almost the same place. That's my biggest re- objection: is that they would end up being like the next door neighbors to the Haladin, who, uh, uh, you know. So it'd be, it's a little bit strange. There's a little bit of like dissonance in my mind to have like the people who set off for rugged independence and they braved all dangers and they end up at finally at this one place where they can be, you know, where they can be left alone and on the, and by themselves and the other people who are like right across the river from them, right. Who took the exact opposite path in every way. And yet they end up neighbors like that. It could work, but it's a little bit odd in some ways. Um, but exactly Marie, we don't want them to have their own land. Exactly. We want them living with the elves. We want them dependent on the elves. We want them... uh, I mean, it's not that they can't have, like, their own sort of suite, (laughs) right? They can... They they don't have to, like, physically, like, you know, uh, uh, live in the houses of the elves and stuff. Um, But, um, 
Uh, but anyway, I, I but yes, I, 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 I would not. I don't think that them establishing their own farmsteads and things under the supervision of the elves is enough because then they would look a lot like the people of Haleth. And the question is, what's the difference between them? Whereas if they were get just for argument's sake, bear with me for a second. If they were in Argothrond somehow, right? If they were in Nargothrond, they would be living in the elf realm, right? They would be guests and servants in the elf realm, right? And they could be given, he could give them a whole wing, right? For them to live in on their own, if they, but they wouldn't, it still wouldn't be theirs. And they would not be establishing their own homes. They would have homes provided for them, right? Hey, look, there's this whole part of my big old cave complex that I've, you know, we've spruced up for you guys, right? Isn't that great? Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't totally object to the idea of, I mean, we can like invent a new realm. Um, if, if, if you guys would like to, there are two things that are crucial for the story of the house of Beor as I'm conceiving it here. One is that they are living with elves, not on their own, right? This is, this is a, 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 a racial cohabitation situation, right? Not a, not just a neighbors. They're not just neighbors. They're not just, um, friends. They're living together, serving, and um, being among the elves, right? And then secondly, that they should be restricted. Because, not because Finrod is trying to keep them down, but because Finrod is laboring under the false idea that this is the best thing he could possibly do. Provide them everything, right? Make a little paradise for them all to live in together, elves and men. And in its way, of course, it's a very... Uh, generous and sort of progressive idea, right? That this, that Finrod, there would be many of the elves who would not think like Finrod about this, that the destiny of the firstborn is to, you know, to help provide for and care for and teach the second comers, right? Um, But that's his vision, right? So here they are and they're all living together. So if that's, if that's supposed to happen, right? Uh, if that's supposed to happen, then we would have to, I mean, and, and, and we want that to happen like in a plot of land, a random plot of land south of, of Doriath, then Finrod's got to move there. I mean, that that's the point, is that they'd be living together, right? So, and to me, that does way more, that's harder I mean, I think it's way easier to get them into into Nargothrond than it is to do that. Um, uh, we could, I suppose, Rhiannon, split them up. Um, I, that's possible. Um, uh, Nick says, if they're inside Nargothrond, what are they eating? Oh, just what the just what the elves eat, right? <laughs> Whatever that is, and don't ask me any questions. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, I, yeah, so um, anyway, Rihanna was suggesting what if they're split up? Some in Minas Tirith, some in Nargothrond, uh, uh, some right with Angrod and Ignor and Dorthonian. I wouldn't want them to be in Dorthonian. I mean, we could have some there, and the rest of them join them, but um, 
But again, to me, it kind of muddies the story. We have enough... Goodness knows we have enough characters and storylines in this season, right? It's one of the reasons why I'm wanting to keep groups together, right? I want the House of Baor to be a story, a story of the House of Baor, right? Which has individual character arcs of a few important characters. Most importantly, Baor, Andreth, and Barahir, right? Those are the three most important characters. They're the only characters in the House of Baor that I care about, Right. If we end up including others, that's fine. I and also, uh, sorry, the other woman blanking on her name, the other wise woman teacher of Andreth. What, what's her face? I'm forgetting her. I, I don't know. Thank you. Yes. I don't know. She's important, too. Um, so, yeah, Beor, I don't know, Andreth and uh, uh, and and Barra here. And I mean, Baron, but he's not going to play a huge role. Um they're the they're they're the only people in the house of Bayor I really really care about uh, in this season. But anyway, I want the house of Bayor to be a story, not four stories, right? Because we don't we can't tell that many stories clearly. Um, um, and okay, and then we have um, yeah. I think it's probably why I left Adonel out first, because she's not originally from the House of Hador, or she's not originally from the House of, of Beor. Yeah, I know, and I might want to change that, but we'll 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 figure her out later. I'm not going to worry about her just now. Um, my impulse is to shift that, actually, and have her be of the House of Beor. Um, uh, but anyhow, okay. So one story of that. So I don't want... So, Rihanna, that's one of my biggest concerns. I wouldn't want to scatter them all over the place because then we don't have... We're going to have less of a coherent story. And I want the shift. If the House of Beor is going to shift from sheltered, happy, elvish pseudo-paradise to front lines in Dorthonian, right? Taking their part in the siege, um, serving alongside the elves or, you know, serving the elves, still serving the elves, but serving the elves in this more active capacity. Right. And not being restricted, being enabled to move forward and change in this way, in the way that people, that people, uh, uh, see this. So, um, uh, yeah, anyway, that's, that's, um, that's what I think uh, that to me, that's a good coherent story for the people of Bayor, and it's a story that works really well with the other stories that we're trying to tell. I mean, at the end of the day, we need to have a short list of human stories that we're telling, right? Um, ultimately, I'm not even thinking about the individual people. I'm thinking primarily about the groups, right? The House of Bayor story, the House of Hador story, and the House of Haleth story. And if we can get that big picture told, here is what elves and how elves and men interact. Here's what the men are like and how they're different from the elves. Here are the conflicts and struggles and trials of the two of them living together and working together and figuring this out, how to uh, be together there in Beleriand. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's the, pri and then of course we have the individual character who's the, the individual characters, whose storylines we, um, we want to tell, right? Whose stories we, we want to we want to get behind? Um, uh, yes, Marie, that's exactly right. Marie says that she understands my impulse not to have some men here and others there. Having Estelot as a kind of holding pen for cultureless men is not a compelling story. No, it's not. And to be totally honest with you, 
I, in my own mind, when I'm trying to remember what the Silmarillion says, I actually find this chapter, this, the chapter of the coming of men into Beleriand, less memorable even than of Beleriand and its realms. Um, because although there's a lot to remember in all of the, you know, and the same thing with like the princes of the Eldalie and stuff like the chapters, which have a lot of lists and like, you know, who is the children of whom and which ones live in which countries, those can get confusing for folks, but still there's like, there's a lot to remember, but like all you have to do is remember it. And if you read it enough times, you can remember. Whereas the story of men are like, uh, there are incidents that are really memorable. The story of Haleth is really memorable. The story of fake Amlach is really memorable. Um, the story of Beor's devotion and the shock at his death of old age is a memorable story. The story of like the people though, as a whole of like what happens to men when they come and what their perspective is and where they live and what they do is not at all. And I always get, I still get Marach and Malach and Amlach confused. Um, it's just, it's not, as it stands in the text, it's not an interesting story. And again, I don't think it's meant to be in that sense. Um, it's it's uh, it's not it's not like what that chapter is trying to accomplish exactly because it's a different thing and a different kind of story. Um, so anyway, okay. Um, so I'm not. I wouldn't insist on their coming to Nargothrond. Um, but I, um, but I would need, Marie, I agree with what you said earlier on. We spent a lot of time in season four establishing like, here's where people live. Like these are their kingdoms. These are their cities. We can't go wantonly building a random new one, right? Like Finrod, whom we spent a lot of time setting up in Nargothrond during season four, randomly moves out temporarily and, you know, creates a little love nest with the people of Beor, you know, south of, I mean, it's, that's weird. It's just weird and confusing. And yeah, yeah, I, uh, um, okay. So Nick is asking, is there a reason that all of his people have to be arrived there by the time Beor is dead? Uh, well, yes. So, Nick, I think your suggestion, which is an interesting so Nick's, uh, tell me if I'm getting this correct, Nick. This is uh, Nick's suggestion about how we can have our cake and eat it, too. And that is, if the people of Beor set out to go to Nargothrond, and they don't get all the way there before Beor dies of old age, and then after Beor dies of old age, this is the point at which they shift, so that they, they're, like, moving but they don't get all the way there and then they change and go up to Dorthonia on the way. Is that right? Is that the idea? Um, uh, yeah. Okay. That's the idea. Right. Because like migration takes a long time. Ask the Teleri. Well, yeah, elf, but whatever. Um, uh, from a human standpoint, that is an awfully gradual migration. <laughs> um, uh, not to mention it seems a little, so, but, but here's my biggest objection to this, Nick. It doesn't satisfy my first criterion, right? We have to have the first part of the story of the House of Beor, which is House of Beor gets set up in elf paradise, right? I want to give Finrod a fighting chance to set up his static paradise, his change-free zone, right? Because if he can't set up a change-free zone then he's not going to learn that that's not, I, I want him to learn that that can't happen, but I don't want him to, but I, I want him to learn it after trying it. 
You know, I mean, that would seem like the way to, uh, the way to, um, uh, the way to, the way to do, and certainly them just like being on the road, traveling with elves for a long time. That is a distinctly non-static situation, right? Not even Finrod could fool himself into thinking that they, uh, you know, I mean, that's, um, uh, kind of taking the whole, uh, you know, the journey is more important than the destination to, to kind of absurd levels, I think. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, so, but, but so Nick, my answer to the question, is it important that the rest of them should get to, if Nargothrond is indeed where we end up going, uh, that the rest of them get to Nargothrond before, uh, Bayor dies? I would say yes. And the reason I would say yes, and this comes back to some of the questions about Bayor particularly that I w- that you guys were asking that I read earlier, um, is th- I would think that the death of Bayor of old age is the first blow against Finrod's plan A, right? Um, there should be, I'm, I'm picturing two stages to the unwinding of Finrod's happy paradise plan. Right. Uh, and the first step is Beor's death of old age. Right. Um, and this, will compel him to confront the fact that, you know what, an unchanging paradise with men is utterly impossible because they, they're going to just die, right? It's going to be constantly changing. Um, and that will be his first indicator. And he's wise enough to sort of see the implications of that, right? But maybe doesn't fully see it or doesn't fully accept it at first, right? Maybe he thinks they can move, they can fight past this obstacle, Right. Well, okay. So you only enjoy it briefly, but at least you can still enjoy it while you, you know, while you're while you're around. Um, But then the second stage is the unrest that begins to build among them. Right. Um, That that this is not what they are designed for. They long to be out doing deeds. They are they are hemmed in a narrow place. I love the irony of the fact that. the things that Feanor said in his rebellion against the Valar were untrue um, of the Valar and of Elves, but they are actually more true. Hemmed in a narrow place is a bigger deal for men than it was for Elves, right? Um, even though it's being done benevolently, just as the other one was. I mean, I think there's a lot that we can make out of that parallel, especially given the whole kinslaying issue, right? And uh, the whole unrest of the Noldor and, and how central that was uh, in the past couple seasons. Um, and to have him, to, I mean, f- the moment in which he can see that and Andreth and Adonel perhaps together can help him to see it, right? Can help him to see that this is... He has created this situation again. He can be telling them. He will have told them the stories, right? Um, uh, so, so Nick, I do think that, therefore, we need to first have the people there, right? Then Bayor dies. Then the unrest grows, right? So that we establish first... Finrod succeeds in establishing this ideal state that he's hoping for, because the problem isn't that it's impossible to create. The problem is that it can't last, not in Middle-earth, not with men. Right. And that's the thing that he has to that he has to learn. So we, I think we have to get them there and get them into that static place in order for them to fall out of it. Now, how many need to be there, Nick? I, I, I'm open there. I don't know that there have to be. 10,000 people in Nargothrond. Um, um, I don't know. 
what do you guys think? I'd be content with the, the House of Baor doesn't have to be huge. Um, uh, I don't know. Maybe a couple hundred? I'd be okay with a couple hundred people. Um, that would seem to work for me. Um, the numbers, not crucial. I'm trying to think of any time when we need... I mean, indeed... We're going to need to wipe them out almost completely by the end of this season. So, you know, uh, that's harder to do if there's like 50,000 of them, you know. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. The House of Hador has to be the biggest house. The House of Hador is like an army in itself. The House of Beor doesn't have to be an army. The House of Beor is like a domestic staff, <laughs> right? It's fine. Um, yeah, Stephen, uh, uh, Stephen Cover says uh, something like Abraham's household, not like Israel at the Exodus. Yeah, no, exactly. That's fine for me. Yeah, so like 50 to 100 people, why not? 50 to 100 people go with Beor, uh, uh, with Finrod. Um, and that makes them easier to smuggle in, right? Um, that makes them easier to smuggle into Nargothrond. Um, uh, uh, and so, yeah, Rhiannon, absolutely. The House of Beor, um, the House of Beor can be very small to start with. Why not? I, I mean, again, the House of Beor is going to be very small at the end of season five, right? Uh, I mean, you're going to be able to you're going to be able to 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 count the House of Beor on a small selection of digits at the end of the season. So, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm just as happy to have them start with fewer. I don't want to have to. There are only so many men I want to kill off, you know, in the Dagor Bragalock there. Um, so yeah, that, I think that would be fine. And again, it makes the the migration easier. I, I mean, I do agree that a migration of like fifty thousand people across the landscape into Nargothrond, little conspicuous, right? Kind of hard to hide. But a, a, a house with you know like fifty uh, or a hundred even um, that um, I you know I think that can I think that can work. Um, so. Um, yeah, yeah. Um Yeah. Yeah, why why not have them smaller than the Haladin, Stephen? I again remember the one thing that the Haladin are going to do that the House of Beor isn't going to do is survive, right? They're still going to be there in a few generations, which is not true of the House of of Beor. So the House of Beor seems to me like is there a, is there a reason why it can't be small? Do we need numbers from them? Like, is there a is there a reason that we need them to be larger than the house of than the house of of of, of Haleth? I don't know that I see one. I had zoned out for a minute, and I thought you were talking about their height. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> no reason no. why they are can be short. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, we do actually have reason for the House of Holith to be shorter than the House of than the House of Beor. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, but um, uh, yeah, Marie says, are they marrying their cousins? Why not? As one does, right? I mean, like that's that's. Uh, uh, that, but uh, 
comparing them to Abraham's household, I don't mean literally that has to be like Abraham's household, right? Which, speaking of which, Abraham's household contained many other people besides his children, right? Um, uh, there are a bunch of servants and stuff too. So there can be like multiple large families involved. Just, and if 50 is too small a number, have it be 100, right? Or have it, Marie, one of the, this could be a, a reason, right? Why they're um, um, a, another cause for discontent. Right. That like they're like, we are few and we are contained here like the Finrod would be thinking. Right. He's thinking from an elvish perspective. Right. So he's thinking like a few of you are going to get married and eventually, you know, a few hundred years from now have children or whatever. And like this, like the, the whole life cycle of humans um, and the number of kids that they're having and all of um, and all of these uh, these other things. Right. Um you know, that wouldn't have been in his in his calculations. Right. So like their desire to go out and mix with the other peoples. Right. Like not to be isolated and separated out from everybody else could be part of the um, could be part, you know, one of the issues, honestly. Right. Why not? Um, uh, so, yeah. Yeah. That's um, um yeah, Rhiannon says the only potential reason for needing quantities is that uh, men should add a substantial military force to help with the fight against Morgoth, but that role could be fulfilled by the House of Hador. Exactly. The House of Hador, they're the army, right? Um, the House of Holith, are, they're impressive. Um, uh, you know, smaller numbers, but they're, but they're impressive. Um, the House of Beor doesn't need to be... Um, um, uh, doesn't need to be. I, I don't. I don't see that they need to be numerous. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. I um, I, I like this, and they can, Nick. I but I do agree with you. They can increase in numbers pretty rapidly. That can be another thing that, like Adonel and um, uh, and Endreth can point to in their discussions with Finra. Like, look, look how the people have grown, right? I mean, like. We will like we are literally hemmed in a narrow space. Like we we're, we will outgrow this place because our kind we grow like under circumstances like this where we're all protected uh, and fed well and all that sort of thing. We multiply much faster. Like we're different. Like we can't live like this. We're not going to be able to all live in the same rooms for the next few centuries, right? Um, with like regularly controlled turnover, right? Um, there needs to be, there needs more, there needs to be more space. So yeah, I mean, that can be another thing. Um, he would be surprised at like the, you know, infants and toddlers all over the place, right? In Nargothrond. Um, uh, because it's, it's just, it's different with humans than it is with elves. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that that's, um, that, it, it, it you know it, it points to another culture difference, and again comes back to our theme of change. Um, uh, <laughs> exactly, Stephen is saying another baby. Didn't you just have one a couple of years ago? Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, I mean, heck, we could even, <laughs> depending on how anatomical we wanted to get, uh, the mere fact that um, um, humans conceive inadvertently. Uh, is something that's going to be a bit of a culture shock uh, to the elves, right? Like, um, I mean, Finrod could even say something about like, well, you know, you should, uh, um, you know, pr pr 
perhaps you should start think about having fewer children and they'll be like, uh, you know, that's not exactly so much in our power as it is for you guys. Um, uh, I know it isn't entirely inadvertent, Nick. It's not like it's a hundred percent accidental. Um, but as as I understand it, um, I mean, if I'm reading the laws and customs among the Eldar correctly, as we've been discussing for the last three weeks in uh, the Midgard Academy class on Wednesday nights, um, the impression I am getting is that Elvish conception is voluntary. Um, there's not a fertility issue among elves. Um, and <clears throat> Finrod, so Finrod could be assuming that, that like, like elves, you have the number of children that you want exactly when you want them and when you are prepared to have them. And it's, you know, and you've, you know, considered uh, all of the circumstances and all of these other things, right? Um, rather than like, you're just like pumping out kids without thought and without apparently, and like what, what you're saying, you're not in control of this. Uh, you know, it just, uh, it just happens whether you want it to or not. Um, but um, anyway, you know, like I'm not saying we have to get into all of the details of all of these things in dialogue, but these are some of the some of the factors which contribute to the idea first growing among the, the humans and Finrod coming eventually to see his idea was a brilliant idea, was a beautiful idea, but it cannot work. It is impossible in the face of the realities of A, humans, and B, of Middle-earth, right? That's not how things work anymore. Um, so, um, so then we get the shift, and they shift and they move up to Doriath from there. They would be more numerous when they leave than when they came. Um, but again, they can, I mean, this it doesn't seem to me at all impossible to to deal with this, right? Um, it would be a big project, um, you know, for uh, the elves of Nargothrond uh, to, you know, smuggle them out um, in, uh, you know, small groups over time, right? Uh, and then, uh, uh, and then eventually they migrate north again, uh, you know, all together. Um, you know, maybe they set up a staging area south of Doriath, right, and smuggle them out, you know, a family at a time um, under heavy guard. Uh, and, you know, it's, uh, it's fine. How many generations am I expecting to pass between Beor and Andreth? Um, I don't remember. How much time do we need to pass there? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Chris says it's like a it's like uh, it's like Exodus, except with a benevolent Pharaoh. <laughs> yeah, sort of. Uh, uh, let my people go because they're just too darn comfortable here. <laughs> right? it's, it's, it's certain parallels, but certain differences from the Exodus story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Andreth is dying this season, too, isn't she? she Andreth. Well, we were. I want her to still be alive at the end. Well, I don't know. She, she could either die at the end or she can maybe. Or she could just fade away in the next just season. <laughs> vanish or I don't know. What, but, but anyway, I mean, well, I certainly I want her there at the end. Well, I don't have to have her death. You know, like, I mean, it, depending on where we start next season, it could be she's long gone by the time. You know what I mean? It's like we don't have to do it. Okay. I was yeah. just wondering because if we were going to have her die in this season, then timing that with Beor's death is, you know. Right. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that's that's so my, that's my big question. So remind me of what we had decided we needed for time 
between like for the for the scope of season five. We had talked about that. I know. I know what the book says. What had we decided we needed for our stories? Which is not necessarily the same thing. Um, uh, <laughs> Stephen covers saying, <laughs> I'm imagining every time the camera shifts away from Bayor and shifts back, he looks a little bit older. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Okay. All right, so let's see. It's meant to open at on three ten and close at four fifty five. So we've got one hundred and forty five years, uh, and I'm allowed to shave fifty years off if I want to. Lovely, lovely. Oh well, that's nice. Then. <laughs> that's nice then. In which case, we only need so. If Andreth is going to be in both, Andreth is going to bridge it as we you know to bridge the first and the second halves of the season, as I was suggesting. Then we would need her. She has to be old enough to be taken seriously, right? She doesn't have to be in charge. She can be the, like, pupil of Adonel still or whatever at the beginning. Um, but she's clearly, at the very least, someone who is clearly going to be a, pro- a prominent voice and leader of her people. Like, we set her up as a prominent voice and leader of her people at the beginning. Give her some experience with Finrod there and make her part of that decision to move out, Right of Nargothrond. And then we have her in her mature years, right? In the second half and, uh, uh, and all that sort of thing. So, okay. Um, all right. Um, so, okay. So that means if we've got 145 years ish, right? Um, we need so how many years do we need to pass between? Uh, so like after they move to Doriath, she's got to be young enough still to have a romance with Ignor. She doesn't have to be super young then. Um, no reason she can't fall in love with Ignor when she's in her thirties or forties. Um, um, let's say you know twenties uh, or thirties maybe. Um, so. For her sake, um, for her sake, we can, um, we'd have to say, what, 50 years? She can be in her 80s or 90s by the end, by the time the Dagor Bragalot comes along? Um, yeah. So... From the point of view of the story of the House of Beor, the time between when they arrive in Elvish Paradise and when they leave is by far the most fungible time, right? Because um, because Andreth is on the clock after that, right? So we've got to we've got to stay focused on keeping Andreth alive until the end. Um, but um, I, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, uh, so yeah, so we, we can be, we can be fairly vague there. There can be several generations. I would be fine with there being several generations. Um, and we'll have to see how this will work. Um, uh, we'll come back to the genealogies after we work out some of these individual stories here. Um, and we can work out what we need for genealogies there. Um, how many generations we want and, and, and whom we get to put in there and stuff. Um, but, um, uh, 
Yeah. Um, so let's see, Rhiannon, if they spent about 50 years in Nargothrond, the, the House of Beor, they spend 50 years in Nargothrond, well, I think it'd have to be longer. If we're going to do the 145 total, um, it would have to be longer because Andreth needs to be at least 20, say, when they leave, right? Um, so that would only give them 30 years before the birth of Andreth there. And that means, yeah, Andreth would be 115 uh, at the end. So we, it would have to be longer. It would have to be longer. So she'd be 115. If we want to cut her down to like 85 or so, that puts it at 80 years uh, for the House of Beor to live in Nargothrond. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, 80, 75, something like that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that would be fine. And so Marie says, Beor can die before they... Oh, yeah. Oh, mm, oh, Beor has to die before they move out of Nargothrond. Definitely. That's a requirement. Um, because the, Beor's death is the first stroke against... This is the first sign of that Finrod's plan is not going to pan out. Right? This is the first thing that pushes Finrod to reevaluate his thoughts about this. So the first stroke is the death of Beor. And then comes the growing unrest and the growing realization, which Andreth and Adonel will help him to, right? That, like, this isn't working out. This this is, was a great idea, and really, we appreciate it, and thank you so much, but um, this is not how it needs to be for folks. Um, you know, Chris, uh, Chris Graham actually brings up something that I had basically assumed— yeah. which is that the lifespan of these people would be longer. We're not basing it on our own lifespans, right? We're, I mean, these well, guys... I don't know that we have to. Um, I think no. we have some flexibility there. Um, I know the Numenorians are going to be longer-lived, but right. they can be. I mean, um, Stephen Cover was also asking, like, could we have them be something closer to Hobbit ages rather than... Um, right. It wouldn't have to be the full Numenorian scale. Um, but even right. living, you know, routinely to somewhere between 100 and 120, um, mm -hmm. I'm not saying we have to do that, but it's in our power to do that. There's no necessary reason why we wouldn't, why we couldn't do that. Um, I mean, it doesn't matter. They could live to 500 years old and it would still seem like an eye blink to the elves, right? Obviously, right. we can't, 500 years would not fit within the time frame here. It needs to be shorter than that. Um I was thinking if you know if we've got three fifty five uh, three what was it oh five anyway like a hundred some years in uh -huh. this season, I mean I'm back to Andreth again. I mean I know we've moved on, but it's like she literally could be alive through the whole thing, young yeah. to old. Theoretically, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now I mean I know we we do get dates. Beor is ninety three when he dies. Andreth is right. in the nineties when she dies. I know I know that that's in the text. Right. My question is, do we want that? Do we need that? Like, what is the function of, the, of, of that? Now, if the, if the role of that is simply, again, to set up the Numenorians ultimately down the road, you know, as uh, to make the um, to make their lifespan seem even more exceptional. OK, that's. Um, uh, but I agree with you, Marie. I don't think we have 
a long a, a good reason to need them to live longer than that yet either. Um, right. So, so I, I, agree. I agree. I agree. You're talking about we don't need to be approaching Numenorean. No, years. I don't think I don't think no, we need to mess no, no. with it. But I would no. say, like, if we did need to make Andreth, if we need to stretch her out a little bit, you know, if she needs to be a hundred, yeah. hundred and five, you know, at the end, no I'm problem. okay with that. You know, like it. But I could see it being, you know, a hundred ish average, right? Being kind of the lifespan. Yeah, or, yeah I mean, if we. You know, she's she's because anyway, she's meant to be exceptional. Right. Um, and anyway, right. people live to 100 now. Like it's not it's not uh, it's not impossible. Um, and but for, Steve and I agree. None of them will beat the old took. That's 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 first. Not even Andrew <laughs> will beat the old took. Um, uh, so. Um, so, yeah, no, it's fine. Uh, so let's say um, I agree. We don't have any need for that it doesn't do any it doesn't serve a role in our story to do that but we always have that option open to us if we decide we want to do that um uh so okay fine um let's see uh so let me go back to the questions then because i think we're we're doing pretty well here now with the story of uh and i hope that um I hope that people I, I I I feel like I've been trying to force the entire community in this entirely new direction that they all didn't that nobody else wanted to go in and I feel a little bit guilty about that but what I would say is if you have a better story for the house of Beor I'm I'm willing to hear it what I'm not willing to do is to get... I have an idea for a story. This is my idea for the story of the House of Beor. I'm interested... I'd be willing to listen to other stories, but what I'm not willing to do is non-stories. And that, like, they vaguely live in Estelad with everybody else is a non-story of the House of Beor. This gives a, a narrative arc to the House of Beor, and it's one that... And, and I think there's a lot of really cool parallels and resonances and opportunities for individual stories. Again, think of the irony of Andreth's character about how, like, no, we need to be not by, you know, I mean, goodness, give her a speech like uh, humans should not be bound to the elves. We need to be on our own. And then she goes and falls in love with an elf and wants to marry him, right? I mean, come on, that's really good. <laughs> uh, so anyway, lots of possibilities here. Um, but um but so again, I'm willing to listen to other variants or other, you know, people have improvements on this story or, or, or other stories that they think would also work. But it needs to be a story like this, right? That that sort of works like this one does. Okay. Um, uh, so Bayor's story, right. Um, okay. Yes. Bayor's story, agree, Marie. He meets Finrod. His people move to Nargothrond with the elves. And he's happy to live and die there and does so. <laughs> Lives and dies there. Yeah, exactly. Um, what is his... Uh, um, so with whom does he interact? Does he do anything? No. I like He moves to Nargothrond and never leaves again in his life. Like, Beor never sees the sun again. <laughs> like, it's fine. Like, I'd be fine with that. He's happy. He's content in Nargothrond. He would be... Um, uh, he would be... I, I just transported, right, with wonder at 
the realms of the Eldar, right? At Nargothrond. Like, Nargothrond is, it's like, it's paradise. This is what they were looking for, right? What more could they want? When he, when he was leading his people over the mountains, and he can talk about how, like, you know, there were stories among us that there was a light in the West, and we have found it, right? Here it is. Um, this is amazing. This is the best thing. Um, so, yeah, Chris uh, says that he likes this story, that it really serves the theme and uh, gives a great setting to show the stark contrasts between the two children. Yeah, it's one of the things I really like about it as well. Um, Marie says the light in the West probably wasn't underground. Exactly. Exactly. Right. That can be part of the sort of tension. Right. Um, that Beor, Beor's super happy. Right. Beor loves it. And yet Beor's enthusiasm, I think, should ring kind of false just a little bit. Right. Not false in the sense of like this guy is dumb or like this guy is deluded, but like this isn't going to last. Right. This this is not the permanent solution that both Bayor and Finrod think it is. Right. We should we should be able to hear that. Right. We should hear that um, uh, um, uh, coming. Right. Um, the uh, the seeds of the future unrest of the House of Beor can be sown in his some of his reactions. Right. So, yeah, the irony of that. I mean, we can even ha- sort of have someone say something like that. Right. About the like, yeah, that the light in the West was underground is weird. Right. Isn't that weird? That is weird. Um, but again, I, that's I, this is why, although I agree that them all living in Nargothrond is a little bit. Secure, you know, challenging from a security standpoint. Um, I kind of love it thematically speaking. Okay, um, so, uh, all right. Um, I don't see Bayor fighting. I see him engaging in peaceful activities his entire life. You know that this is like a retirement for him, and we should show this. We can show this in a couple different ways, right? On the one hand, so. The clearest contrast, right? The two stories among, uh, in the big picture of the stories, among the men, uh, among the peoples of the men, the two most obviously contrasting stories are the house of Haleth and the house of Beor, right? Um, and notice how we can push those in different directions, right? The house of Beor, they go to Nargothrond and they don't ever like lift a finger or put on armor. They don't know how to use weapons. Like they don't have any. They dress in nice clothes and, and you know, have no calluses on their hands. And they're like, ha- whereas the house of Haleth, they're rugged, you know, and they're uh, arm, armed and, and uh, you know, armed to the teeth. And they're, they're like fierce warriors. Uh, you know, after the tradition of 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 Haleth, their 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 leader. Um, so we have two totally different, and there's like pluses and minuses on both sides, right? Neither one of them is ideal. Um, the people of Haleth, there's, I mean, we as we talked about with Haleth's story, she's awesome, she's impressive, she's very admirable, but she's not perfect, right? And she certainly does not create a perfect life for her people by any stretch. Um, and of course, the same is true for the House of Beor. They also are not living a perfect life, even though that's what Finrod's plan is for them. Um, so the um, the contrast is uh, now. Nick says they can't be too ineffective for Barahir to rescue Finrod. Ah, but he's the younger generation, right? Barahir's going to grow up on Dorthonian, 
and they're going to be different. And that, again, is going to be another thing that is going to be like yet another mind-blowing thing for Finrod, right? They're going to set off and move to Doriath. Or, sorry, move to Dorthonia, not Doriath. Oh, dear. Oh, my. No way. Anyway, so they're going to move to Dorthonian, right? And Finrod is like, okay, you guys go ahead, and I'll, I'll come visit you in a little bit. So he goes to visit them like 40 years later, which is a little bit in Finrod's world, right? Um, and what does he find? They're totally different. The culture has transformed, right? In one generation, now they're like a warrior culture different from the Haladin, right? Different from the uh, the men of Hador, right? Uh, up in Dorloman, but they've changed. And Finrod is like, whoa, holy changed, <laughs> right? Okay, this is how it's supposed to go. This is, this is, so this is what happens, right? You leave men on their own and look, boom. You know, you turn your back and you come back and you don't even recognize them anymore, right? Um, uh, so, uh, yeah. Now, Chris, I do agree um, that they would have been taught in the crafts of the elves so that they wouldn't be useless, right? Absolutely. They would know things. They would be, we should show them, because again, we do want to show that there is benefit to this, right? They will be blessed uh, and enhanced, uh, enhance in arts and graces, right? Like others are not. Um, so they will know things. They will have like, you know, capabilities and technologies and things that the Haladin don't have. The Haladin are living, uh, their, their lives are quite crude, uh, in, in contrast, I would say. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cultured warriors with elvish learning and frontier skills, Marie. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, we're setting up, remember, we're, we're setting up for Baron, you know, our, like, you know, uh, who's going to be our, like, proto-Aragorn figure, right, from the beginning. Um, I mean, that parallel is something that, you know, we're going to need to be very conscious of from day one, obviously. So, um, so yeah, there's a certain parallel there, right, between, uh, you know, like Aragorn, who was raised in Rivendell, right, uh, with the learning of the elves, and yet, uh, you know, then goes out and becomes, uh, you know, a ranger of the wild, Um that's going to be where Barahir and Baron are, I think, especially since, remember, that also fits. If the House of Beor is not enormous, it's going to be bigger when they leave than when they came, obviously, but there's still not going to be 50,000 of them in the field, right? So Beor, the people of Beor are never going to be an army. Um, maybe there are a couple thousand of them by the time we get to, um, uh, you know, the Dagor Bragalach. But they're... Um, um, but still, they're not going to be, you know, we can show that they're like a, they, they would become like a woodland people, uh, but different from the Haladin, right? They would be, you can tell the differences between, because they, you know, came from Nargothrond, right? And they would be, so they would be, um, I would see them being much more sort of ranger-like uh, in, in that way. Um, and their contributions to um, the war efforts and stuff would not be, you know, infantry armies, uh, but, uh, rangers and scouts and things like that. Um, so that when we get Barahir and Baron and the band of outlaws at the beginning of season five, it is the sort of last surviving sort of bastion of, um, you know, the culture of the house of Beor and it fits with what they've been doing. They don't have to be exactly like that from the beginning, but, um, that's sort of a natural extension in a sense of their, uh, uh, of their culture. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so Stephen H. says, if there's only a couple thousand, why would Fingolfin think that the time would be ripe for the big push against Morgoth? Ah, 
because of the House of Hadar, who can be far more numerous, and we haven't gotten to them yet. Um, uh, but yeah, the House of Beor wouldn't be wouldn't be really tipping the scales there. The important element of the House of Beor is their relationship with Finrod, who is our central character for working out the theme of this season. Right, that's the most important thing, and in per, in playing that role, they would be playing an enormously important role in this season, even if they're not going to play a very important military role. But again, we can we can find something useful for them to do. Uh, I'm sure. Um, okay, so. All right, so uh, thinking uh, then specifically about the question, are there any events that must occur before Bayor's death? Um, not many. Just getting there. Getting there and establishing this new happy world. Um, uh, happy world with foreshadowings of becoming less happy over time uh, would be that. And as far as the question, the final question about prefiguring the death of Aragorn, um, uh, I... Um, uh, yeah, I I do think that we can have a really good conversation between Beor and Finrod. Um uh which shows Finrod surprised, you know, at his death because of course Finrod he's interpreting this from an elvish framework, right? So he would assume that Finrod or that Beor was like despairing of life, right? That he was uh, you know, suffering in spirit as one of the Eldar do, do and sometimes will die um, because he knows no other cause, right? No injury, no disease, um, and yet he's dying. Um, so he must be in some kind of, have fallen somehow into some kind of despondency or something like that. I mean, that's the only way he would have to understand it. And Beor can have it, uh, a slightly Aragonian, Aragornian conversation, right? Um about submission to death and saying, no, this is the way that it is. This is, it is, you know, uh, it is, you know, we can even have him use, use the phrase, you know, to give back the gift or something if we'd want to. Um, but, but again, and this is why it can become not a negative thing. It's not like Finrod is, you know, hideously upset by Beor's death and that's what leads to the first shaking of his uh, understanding and resolve about change. It can be a positive thing, as he sees, like Beor accepts it, right? And um, and shows like, no, this is, again, this is what it means to be human, is to be accepting of this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so that's why I think so on, on the, as far as the question about attempting to heal Bayor's advancing age, uh, I think not exactly. I think it would be because he would know that he wasn't ill. Um, but he I, I, I would think that the way he'd interpret interpret it would be some kind of despondent despondency or, or grief that he was hiding. Right. Or but Finrod could be confused because he presumably can read minds well enough to know that Bayor is not in fact in the, in the grip of despair or grief. Right. Um, and yet he seems to be fading like one, like someone who is right. Um, and so trying to understand that and then Bayor helps him understand that from his deathbed. Right. I like it. I like that. Okay. Let's, uh, move on to Amlach. Um, briefly. Well, not, let me, 
actually just kind of start off here talking about the framework and this in as much as it connects with the House of Beor, and then we'll pick up with Amlock next time, because um, it's getting late, and I'm trying to turn over a new leaf and not end so late. Um, so, first, the council. There are a couple things that we can do here. One thing that we can do is... I am... We have two options, I think, with the council. One is that we can make the, the council either primarily or even entirely a matter for the house of Amlach Hador Malach, right? That third house. That is all still ambiguously over at Estelot, right? Um, they're the ones trying to figure out what to do. The House of Beor, they knew what to do. The House of, Halleck, of Haleth, they knew what to do also, right? Um, it's the lump that still doesn't know what to do, right? Um, so they're going to have a council to decide what they do. There could potentially be representatives of the House of Beor and of the House of, um, of, um, of Haleth there, right? I mean, there could be someone among the you know, Amlachians uh, who say, hey, let's send emissaries to our, you know, friends of old, you know, who now live away from here, one with the elves and one on their on their own. Um, and we um, and we, um, you know, and we, we would like to to get their counsel in, uh, you know, in this as well, to, to hear their voices and their advice about what we should do. Um, but again, the, the, the decision that's being made, the people of Hollow, they're not making their decision. They're, they're, they're good, right? House of Bayor, they're not as good, but they're, I mean, they're not permanently good, but they're good for now, right? They've made a decision anyway. Um, so yeah, exactly, Marie. The largest house is the least monolithic. So they're all just kind of trying to figure out what do we do? What's going on, right? Um, here's... One of the other things that I think is really important for us to do is not to leave the populations muddy, right? It's okay for us to have the split. But my suggestion is that we simplify things as much as we can here so that we can keep the storylines clear for everybody and not just muddy, right? So we have a clear story for the House of of Beor already. We have a clear story for the House of Haleth already. The story here is the council because everybody else, they need to know. So we've established the two extremes, right? And now everybody else has to decide what are they going to do, right? Given the data that we have from the House of Beor and the data that we have from the House of Haleth, which is better? What do we do, right? And so they're going to have their big council. Um, what I think is really important is that the, um, uh, the result of the council... <clears throat> can be a split. Some are going to leave, right? And they're going to take off and they're not going to be heard from ever or for a long time. The others, I think, are the House of Hador, right? Those who decide to stay, move to Dor Loman and form the army of men that are allies with the elves, right? Um, 
I don't think we want there to be a lump left over after that. Like there's a decision point. Some of them say yay. Some of them say nay. And uh, but now we're done. Right. And that's um, and 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 now again, the story is clear. And so those who say yay and remain and join, they join on different terms. Right. So we have now like a third case. They become the, you know, um, uh, you know, and. uh the, the, you know, we've got the one kingdom that's too hot and the one kingdom that's too cold. And then the, the third kingdom that is just right. <laughs> right. I mean, that's in one sense, the way that we can kind of do it. Um, uh, there's the one, the biggest issue that I see with that, that, that is having the story of this people of the house of what will be eventually the house of hot or, um, uh, most clear to have their story most more, most cohesive. Amlach himself is my biggest problem. Uh, that is how Amlach goes with Mithros, right? Um, so, yeah. So Marie, yes, I do think that the ba- that the uh, the Beoric move to Dorthonian happens after Hador goes to Dorlomen. Yes, that's what I would suggest. Um, uh, the decision is made. The council is held, and the decision is made. Once, Be- you know, the people of Bear are in place in Nargothrond, and the people of Haleth are in place um, in Brethil. Um, then they make up their minds. Some of them leave, and some of them stay, and they go up to Dor Loman, and they est- and they ally themselves, not serve, not move in with, not um, you know join their cultures too, but they become neighbors and allies with the elves up in the north, right? Except one of them goes to Mithros instead. And the simplest way to solve this problem is just to say, no, that doesn't happen, right? Amlach doesn't go to Mithros. Let's just cut that bit. But there's something that I really like about Amlach going to Mithros. Uh, I, I, I can't... I don't know if I can explain it right now, but I don't want to lose that. That feels to me like a cool story. That feels to me like something I want to, like a story I want to get more out of rather than something that I want to, uh, that I want to cut. Um, So, um, so yeah, I, I want to think a little bit more, but I think as we talk next time, more in detail about Amlach's story and the story of the council and the fake Amlach situation, um, Maybe I think we can we can refine Amlock's personal trajectory a little bit more, um, and uh, um, see how we can kind of work that work that in. Um, uh, Rihanna, and you talk about the House of Hador waiting until Hador comes around before they move. I'm I'm ready for Hador to come around pretty uh, pretty uh, early, actually. Um, Again, we can work out the chronology here, but um, we have some time. Remember, we, we inserted a good deal of time between the House of Beor moves to Nargothrond and the House of Beor moves out of Nargothrond, right? If we have something like 80 years between the moving in and the moving out, right? Hador has to come along somewhere in there, right? Uh, so, you know, that's... Uh, I, I, I think that's fine, right? That gives us... Um, it could be anywhere in that 80 year gap, basically. And honestly, to have it be in the second half is fine. Right. Um, to me, I, I, you know, they've been muddling along there in Estelad for a while. Um, 
we do have to figure out why do they call the question, <laughs> you know, like what prompts the council uh, if they're already living there for the better part of a generation. Um, um, Rhiannon, I want to change that. I am. I, I've said this before. Um, Hador, I, I, I want to change the heck out of Hador. I want Hador to be the origin of this house, not to be a later scion of this house. And the reason I want to do that is I want to eliminate the muddiness of this house, which is exceptionally muddy, pre-Hador, right? Um, I want to move Hador up the genealogy. Definitely want to move Hador up the genealogy. Um, so I'm, I, 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 it is my plan to have Hador be in the first half, um, um, which is going to mean shifting things around for the Daigor Bragalak. It sure is. Absolutely. Um, but that's fine. We can, we'll, we'll, we'll work on that. Um, because after we finish talking about Amlach, Hador is where we're going next uh, to figure out his story uh, and where that sort of fits in. So, um, uh, anyway, does Hador need to be alive for the Daigor Bragalach? I'm not sure he does, but we'll have to wait till we get to his story uh, specifically before we can answer that question. Um, actually, I'm thinking, here's what I'm thinking. Having done the teaser about the council in Amlach, Let's talk about Hador first next time. Let's resolve Hador's story so we can get kind of the back end more clear, right? Um, and then we'll do the we'll 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 do the things that lead up to that, right? That I think I think I think that'll be I think that'll be clear. So let's talk about Hador. Then we'll come back to Amlach and the fake Amlach situation and how that comes about. But once we know like what we're handing off to eventually in the House of Hador, I think that that'll be clearer. Um, Okay, um, so yeah. Anyway, let's um, uh, we'll 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 sort that within our time frame and everything. So Hador, and then Amlach, uh, and then uh, we'll see uh, uh, what we uh, what we move. We're then we're making some pretty serious progress in human stories, and I'm, I'll be feeling a lot better about this. So good, awesome. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. This was a really, really excellent discussion. I appreciate your patience and forbearance. I know that I've come in, as I said already, with this like totally different concept for the story that you guys have been uh, very uh, admirably non-stubborn in your reactions to. I really appreciate that. I, I want you to know that I don't take that for granted. Um, uh, uh, and uh, it's been a lot of fun refining that uh, with you guys and thinking this through a little bit. I look forward equally to considering the Hador story and then working back to the Amlach uh, story next time. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for being with us. And I will say, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.